My name is Marek Mazurik, and I talk to people and then write stuff. Hi, my name is Kevin, and I have a podcast. On this episode of Why Do You Do That? My guest is Marek Mazurik. Marek is a buddy from high school who now works in print journalism. He and I were supposed to be on a trip to Disney World together when the world shut down mid-March 2020. We talked about what it's like being a journalist nowadays and how he got into the field, which is something I knew very little about before, and it was a lot of fun getting to talk to such a great guy. Enjoy! Hello and welcome! My name is Kevin, and as a reminder, I have a podcast. This is it, and my guest this week is Mark Mazurik. Mazman, welcome! How are you doing, man? Hey, Kevin, thank you for having me. I am doing well. It's a beautiful uh, Saturday here in South Bend. Um, excited to be the first guest on your podcast who has real face for radio, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. You do, you do. You're um, also, I mean, I guess you, you probably consider yourself, uh, would you, you'd you say you're a journalist? Would, would you not? I would. Some sources may say that, Kevin. That's right. I, I am a journalist. I work at the South Bend Tribune, which is the local print newspaper in South Bend, Indiana. Wow. Well, I, I have a podcast, so you could, I guess you could say I'm a little bit of a journalist myself, you know. Uh, you could say that for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> We're kind of like doing the same, the same level of things. Um, you just like produce some, some content, like once every couple weeks or so when you feel like it, talk to some friends. That's all you do, right? Yep. That's all my stories quote only my friends. And that's generally how we go by in the journalism world. Uh, mm, yep. Okay. So we're basically the same. I agree, Kevin. I agree. Uh, but no, seriously, in, in all, in all seriousness, um, what, I guess, what kind of content do you cover for the South Bend Tribune? Yeah. So one of the joys of being at a small town paper is that you get to cover a lot of everything because the staff is not super large. (laughs) So if something comes up and you happen to have a free second, you're the one who covers that. Um, So I've covered everything from, you know, your run of the mill uh, government meetings, common council meetings, all the way to some wacky stuff. I've covered a cow stampede in LaPorte County, our neighboring county, where a couple hundred, or not a couple hundred, but about 80 cows got loose and tramped down the highway for a few minutes. Wow. I've covered uh, just a few weeks ago, one of my uh, top stories was about 200 to 400 Notre Dame freshmen um, all gathering at one bar in Mishawaka, uh, obviously a violation of COVID protocols on many levels. Um, so it's a little bit of everything, but I think to better answer your question, what I'm normally doing, my assigned beat is public safety. So cops and courts. Um, so uh, police departments in the area, court cases in the area, that is what I do most of the time. Cool. So um, I, I guess, what do, how often are you getting like a case, um, like a, a story to cover that is specifically in that like public safety realm compared to just anything in general? Well, I'd say normally I do a few, a few stories a week, somewhere between two and four stories a week is normally what I write. Um, public safety related, it's usually two or three stories a week. Um, sometimes it's a relatively simple story. There is some arrest that happened that is interesting to write about. Um, However, over the last year, something that's been obviously a very hot button issue in the country overall is 
uh, police reforms, public safety reforms in the wake of uh, the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis, that's obviously still playing out. Um, but even, you know, even though South Bend and many cities around the country weren't directly involved, there's protests everywhere and police departments everywhere are looking um, to make changes, or if they're not, the public is looking to make them make changes. And so that's been a lot of what I've been covering over the last um, year in, in South Bend. And uh, stemming from that, there's a lot of different things that the public safety beat touches. Um, for instance, when we're talking about police reform in South Bend, public safety reform, it links right into um, uh, then mayor, but now Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who was the former mayor of South Bend. He, he is very tied up in the uh, stories about public safety reform. I guess not as much anymore. He's not directly involved now, but what he did or didn't do for public safety reforms during his ter term as mayor is something we've written about um, going forward. It's something we're writing about. Um, and so that's just one example of how public safety touches on a variety of, of factors. It can touch on business as well. Um, and I guess, again, it can touch on 400 freshmen from Notre Dame going to a bar in Mishawaka every once in a while. So that's kind of, that's what I do. Okay, cool. So, and I think that leads us into, um, we're going to, we're going to stick with the, the, the class schedule. We're going to school today. Um, and that right. kind of leads into our first class, which uh, we didn't discuss previously. And this isn't even the surprise one that I had planned, but I kind of like to talk about uh, health class. And Ooh. in particular, how COVID has affected your work, whether or not it's physically spending time going places versus having Zoom interviews, or uh, I guess, as you mentioned, kind of the, the things that you're covering have changed, obviously, as public interest shifts, um, but maybe there's something more there, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's amazing that somehow in uh, the year of our Lord 2021, I managed to go, I don't know what, a couple of minutes in a podcast without mentioning COVID. Yeah, uh, I had completely forgotten about that for a second, but you're right. It, it's been a huge shift. I mean, obviously it's it's an understatement to say it's been a huge shift for, uh, for everyone, but for journalism and for me in particular, um, we have been working remotely since last March. It's been about a, almost exactly one year now. I remember the day about a year ago when um, COVID kind of came into the public consciousness in a major way. I remember our editor, we had an all staff meeting, which we usually don't have. And every reporter was assigned to do a story about COVID that related to their beat. You know, arts guy, arts beat was, you know, how, what kind of arts things are closing due to COVID um, education, like what schools are closing if, if so, when. Um, you know, how does this affect everything? And so for me in public, sa uh, public safety, a lot of it in the early days was figuring out how does this affect uh, police officers and firefighters? Because um, they're still, they can't, they're, they're uh, essential workers in that they can't work from home. So covering how that works, a um, lot of issues related to that. Courts shut down for a brief period of time. They're beginning to start trials back up again. Um, the jails were trying to reduce jail population, so they uh, let out uh, many people with misdemeanor or nonviolent felony charges, um, which was another big point of public discussion. Mm -hmm. um, but so that's kind of just the things we've covered. But in terms of how it affects the day to day job, it is harder. It's very hard to because so much of journalism is talking to people, building relationships. 
um, in order to you know report on things. Um, it's hard to do that when you're stuck virtually or over the phone. It's hard to kind of just talk to people after meetings or press conferences about things that are coming up just to get an idea of what's going on. Um, so it definitely is tough in that way. Meetings have obviously all been virtual for most the most part. Um, and, and so that's that's a big way it's affected it. I think I'm, I've been shocked, honestly, by how possible it's been for me to do my job just sitting at home and calling people or Zoom, uh, doing Zoom interviews with people. It's, uh, again, you can sit on meetings virtually. I obviously still go out if there's um, a breaking incident or something else that's going on. A few court cases I've been to in person, but it is a little bit astounding how much we've been able to do our jobs just from staying at home for the most part. Uh, so that's the personal effect. There's obviously an industry effect that maybe we can get into later, but um, yeah, I know that's a long-winded answer, but it's yeah, no, that was, a lot of things in a major way. That's Yeah, that's exactly what I was uh, talking to hear too, because you're not labeled as an essential worker, correct? No, no, we're not. But I, I think, I like to think that the information that we put out is is essential in terms of reporting on Openings, closings, latest uh, advice from health workers. Exactly, so, yeah. Espe yeah. Especially in in the public safety beat, it yeah. feels like a lot of your content is directly reporting on what's happening in essential work. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And so yeah. it, it would feel like you would have to be still, you know, not labeled as an essential worker, but I know thinking back to, uh, thinking back to, to high school government class, when you're learning about the branches of the government and uh, you you learn about the, uh, I guess the, what do we call it? Like the watchdog status of the press in the mm -hmm. US government um, and in government in general. So when you're, when you're talking public safety, uh, you're kind of important to have people know what's happening. So. Yeah, I, the, the fourth estate at its finest uh, here. And, and you know, the, the, the function of journalism as a watchdog for government has a much, you know, we can talk about that in a much broader context <laughs> is, nationally. Has, has that come into question recently, uh, the, the function of, <laughs> I haven't, of national I haven't journalism about, you know, in the I government? I think everyone pretty much says that we're all real news all the time. I haven't, I haven't heard anything to the contrary on that. Um, but, but in terms of what you were mentioning, I agree just locally, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the, you know, any other major CNN, they're, you know, they, they do good work in their own right, but they're not reporting on what conditions are like in St. Joseph County, Indiana, or, you know, any small town, you know, they don't have, you know, they don't have lists of closings of restaurants or businesses, you know, healthcare clinics or mental health clinics that are open where you can go. Um, so I think I, I would hope people have realized that in the pandemic, especially local journalism and especially local newspapers have been a very important and I would say essential source of information for for people. Sure, certainly when when you're trying to cover a lot of area like in a national news source, uh, you have to use a bigger brush and you have to paint with a bigger brush. So you miss out on those the, the smaller details that you can pick up. Well, see, now in... that's art class, Kevin. We're in health class right now. Oh, shoot. Uh, please stay on topic. Sorry, I uh, I thought this was Eduardo's interview. We were talking about art. Uh, never mind. Um, <laughs> So I guess, wonderful. That wraps up health class for us. Um, let's go into into some history then. And I know I know you were a, a history major. 
back at Notre Dame, uh, but uh, college was years ago. So we're just going to talk about your personal history for right now, at least. College was years ago. Wow. Way to make me feel old. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah, when did you when did you kind of start your journalistic journey? I guess. So uh, my path to journalism is potentially a little bit different than others who you might talk to. Um, I think it really started for me. I grew up loving sports. Um, I, as you mentioned, I went to Notre Dame, but all my life was a big Chicago sports fan because of my dad. Um, and so when I got to Notre Dame. I joined, I quickly joined the student newspaper on campus called The Observer um, as a sports writer. So I started covering intramural uh, football games, uh, quickly, you know, started getting into like covering the men's basketball team, men's football, men's football team. Um, for, no, for the student newspaper there, I had a great time. I really found my kind of my fit there on college on campus at The Observer. And so I was hoping to parlay that into a sports writing job uh, somewhere, but uh, due to a I guess due to more history class than we have time for here, it didn't quite work out. I got a few news writing internships, however, um, one at the South Bend Tribune and then another at the Boston Globe um, in Boston, which was very fun. Um, and so that turned into the full-time news writing job here um, at where, I'm at, where I am at the Tribune right now. So started in sports because of my love for it, had a great time at the college newspaper. Uh, developed a more a bigger appreciation for new side the new side of reporting as well, and so that's where I am right now. Um, I guess public safety specifically, there wasn't anything that drew me to that so much as that was the job that was open at the time, and I've been learning the ropes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where I where I was coming from with uh, how I got into journalism. Is there anything beyond so getting into journalism through sports journalism? because of an, of an interest in sports, is there also something to uh, enjoying the, like the documenting of everything, I guess? Like, were you, were you the kid in social studies class in middle school that was like, I'm the recorder, I'm gonna write down everything we do. Was that you? Um, uh, you were a great no, bubby, so I, we didn't have we didn't have Miss Zepko's social studies class together. <laughs> no, we did not. That was a, a that's funny you bring that up. I was not that kid, but I think that was more because my handwriting was just atrocious and still is more than my. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was I mean that would have been something I would have enjoyed. Um, but when you talk about documenting, it, it did remind me that as you mentioned, I was a history major in college, and something I do love about journalism is how the writing is so different from history writing. You know, when you're a history major or any social sciences major and you're writing these, you know, 10, 15 page papers for classes and you have to cite all your, um, well, we'll get into that. So anyway, you have to write these large papers. You have to string together paragraphs and make, make it all make sense in some very long form cohesive argument. I found that journalistic writing was almost like like a little break from that, just like a fun treat where they're much shorter articles that you're writing. Uh, the paragraphs can be one sentence. And if you're really a stylist, if you're really a virtuoso, you can have one word paragraphs sometimes if you feel like it. Um, but at the same time, like a history paper, you have to cite your sources. You have to kind of prove each step along the way, you know, where you're getting your information from. And so I think that's something that I transitioned from my love of history and history writing into uh, journalistic writing. Yeah, sure. So um, 
hot topic always in in our in the year 2020 2021 of just you know fake news and you mentioned citing sources and being able to back up what you're saying what sort of i guess framework structure is there in the industry that keeps that true like is that a a self-governed thing at the tribune where if you're posting something like the editor stands behind the sources of of their uh of their journalists or something or what's keeping you from not doing that well i guess there's nothing in term i mean legally speaking there's there you can't do libel but that's something a little bit that's a very kind of high bar to prove so that's not what's keeping it us from just being willy-nilly with things uh i mean it is a source of kind of I guess journalistic integrity is what we would say is kind of the buzzword for it. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of the, the idea that not only us at the Tribune, but everywhere that is a reputable paper, it, when you're publishing facts and information, that this is accurate, that you're either getting it from an official source um, or you're, you know, whether it, or you're getting it from sort of, sort of public documentation um, in some way, shape or form. And I guess at the end of the day, there it's up to the reader to read what publications are putting out and deciding whether that um, they feel that it's accurate. However, at the Tribune, certainly we always strive to make sure, I and mean, we really stand by our journalistic integrity. Um, you might be getting into questions more about anonymous sources and things of that nature, where larger publications often will run. Uh, they'll publish information that was given to them by anonymous source. So instead of Kevin Chamberlain said, that'll they'll say sources close to Kevin Chamberlain or whatnot. Um, that's a very interesting conversation. However, that really doesn't come into play much for the, the Tribune and at local papers. <laughs> that's a little bit more for um, more for national publications where you're reporting on, you know, politicians and business leaders and things of that nature. Um, it doesn't come into play as much here, but um, I will say if we do have anonymous sources or information coming to us that someone doesn't want to have their name used or go on record, we always try to back that up with something that is on record. So if someone just comes and says, like, hey, I think Bob Smith is stealing millions of dollars from the city government, you know, if they don't want to be quoted on that, we have to look at, you know, public records and say, oh, well, where here's where the money is, here's where it should be, yada, yada. Um, I think you raised a very big question that's hard to answer. You in can a short answer this on, on my podcast right here in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, can I, I can go on record if you want. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just a large question, but it, it is a, it's a kind of the, it's kind of a badge you wear in a sense that a journalistic integrity that when you publish this, when you write this down and it's published, the Tribune stands behind this or whatever publication is stands yeah. behind this and believes this to be accurate. How do you? Now, does that mean, I was yeah. going to say, we make mistakes every once in a while, but none of that I would say is due to us intentionally misleading. It's mostly because people we talk to are, are either lying or are mistaking themselves. Sure. So it's, it's really a kind of a, a personal claim to it. You're staking your kind of integrity on it um and trying to do trying to do your best in whatever you're saying and and clearly you know um yeah there's that phrase and i am so embarrassed to say this because i'm sure it's a churchill quote 
but I'm going to say it's a Modern Warfare 2 quote. Um, <laughs> do you know the quote I'm about to say of no, history is written I, by the victors? Ooh, that is not, I don't believe that's Churchill, but I know that quote very well. All right. Um, I'm, I'm but, sure it's somebody really famous. Uh, <laughs> probably like someone like Victor Hansen, maybe. Anyway, I don't know that, you know, I don't, I never saw it in Modern Warfare because I never died in the campaign because I'm, you know, a pro gamer in my spare time. Sure, sure. Um, do you do you how do you feel of kind of that framework of like the things that you are are documenting potentially become the uh become the source for history um in in the future of something do you do you feel that weight kind of to it of being like what are we claiming is the victor here are we are we speaking to the the losers quote unquote <laughs> Uh, again, you, you touched on a very, very lengthy and important topic, but uh, for sure, uh, another common journalism cliche is that uh, journalism is the first draft of history. And so obviously, historians can go back and do much more extensive research than we're able to do in the time we have. But um, that is always a consideration. What stories are worth writing about is something that is very, it's a very important issue to journalists. Um, just by writing about something, we have the power to say what is and isn't important in a community um, or how we frame an issue is very important as well and can lead in different directions. Um, to your, your point about making sure, are we quoting the victor or something to that effect? Um, I think we think less of it like that, but it is important to know who you're speaking to about a subject. You know, when we're talking about, for instance, police reform, um, it's one thing to, you know, there are stories that sometimes are just like, here's what the police department is doing, here's what they're saying. Um, it's also important to talk to the people in the community that the police are policing to get the sense of how they feel about it, how they're effective about it. Um, the, again, the Black Lives Matter protests and George Floyd are the latest in cases that, uh, they're the latest instances that are, Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words here, but they're important milestones that make everyone across all industries reconsider how they're doing things. And one thing in journalism that is being reconsidered is who are the sources we talk to. If there is a per if there is a, a person of color who is it, it, would it be good to get a person of color to talk about a certain issue or a certain story where in the past maybe we wouldn't think about that as much. Um, that's definitely something that needs to be taken into account too when you're a journalist um, deciding what to write about, how to frame it, and who to talk to about that. So in that sense, you're very right, I feel, Kevin, with your Winston, Winston Churchill-ish quote that journalism does have a role to play in deciding how people see issues and how ultimately history will see issues. Sure, yeah. So um, let's go over into geography class now cool. uh, and talk about how... Uh, how your location affects what you do and, and how you do it. Um, specifically, so you, you're from South Bend, I guess we should probably mention that. So um, mm -hmm. that kind of relates to why you ended up going to a place like the South Bend Tribune. It's in the community that you grew up with. You, you know the beat pretty well, that sort of thing. How is South Bend uh, comparable or, or different from other other locations, um, either different sizes or even within the same size. I don't know if 
you know, is there something different between how you report in South Bend compared to how you report in Fort Wayne, that sort of well, thing? Well, that I, I wouldn't know as much because I haven't been to Fort Wayne, but I imagine <laughs> it's very similar. Um, you're right, I am from South Bend, I guess technically from Mishawaka, which is a city right next to South Bend um, for those of you who are not from the area. Um, so yeah, I do know the town well. Um, and I think there are a couple things in that question of geography. Uh, the first is, of course, we're a small, uh, relatively small paper. We're not minuscule. There are papers that are smaller, but we have, I don't know, about 10, 10 full-time reporters, maybe a little fewer. Um, and so, uh, again, one of the main things that means is that you're covering everything. So my beat is public safety, but with so few reporters, there's always, if there's something that's going on, you're on that, or if someone has a day off or a vacation, you know, you're filling in for them. Um, it's, you have to be ready to cover everything in a way that if you're at a larger publication, you're allowed to specialize a little bit more. Um, and I guess in terms of, again, being a smaller paper, we're again, we're not talking about, usually we're not talking about issues of national importance. Um, we always want to have an eye on the local. So, you know, if someone wants, uh, if someone in our readership wants a story about what the stimulus bill is going to do for them, um, they'll probably get a better understanding of that by reading a national publication. And so that's kind of something that we leave to larger publications. Well, we want to try to focus on what can we do that no one else can do. And that's reporting on local stuff, local happenings, local government, because Again, you know, Washington Post and New York Times are not reporting on South Bend City Hall. Um, South Bend, again, related to geography, is very unique in that we, in recent years, have not one but two figures of national import in Mr. Mayor Secretary Buttigieg and also a new, the newest member of the Supreme Court, Amy Coney, Amy Coney Barrett, who was a Notre Dame law professor. So we've had the South Bend angle on some of the more nationally prominent figures uh, in you know, their last news cycle. So that's another thing as well. Um, I don't know if this is the place for it, but one of my favorite, favorite stories that I've done at the Tribune was, it was, um, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Pete Buttigieg dropped out of the presidential race on March early March, which was a Saturday. Yep. And so the next Monday, uh, I got to, I was actually at his concession concession speech thing, which was fun to cover. And then the Monday, my editor assigned me a story that was basically, what is the tenor of the town now that Pete's dropped out? What are kind of the physical signs of this manifest, of this decision? Um, and so it was just me and a photographer driving around looking for stuff and people to talk to, like, I don't know, anyone sitting dejectedly on a bench with a Buttigieg shirt on or stuff like that. Um, went into a few restaurants, but the, the kind of the break that kind of made it a story was we actually um, got into his old campaign headquarters near downtown South Bend as a group of volunteers were packing everything up. Um, wow. and so you got to talk to a few of them and our photographer, photographer, photographer got some great pictures of, you know, a volunteer like Terry, like as mid, mid peel as she was peeling down a Pete uh, sign on the wall. So that's kind of a fun uh, story that again, we're able to do because we have a reporter who's there, all these national organizations, you know, they're covering Pete, but you know, they're now, now that Pete's dropped out, they're all like, oh, what's next for Pete? Is he going to be a cabinet member? Um, but here at the Tribune, we got kind of that angle that, uh, 
not everyone else had. So that's one way I think in which being a small town paper, it's always a focus on the local, but in South Bend's case, how does the local play into the national um, in certain specific instances? And so you mentioned in there that your your editor was like, hey, give you know, gave you this assignment. Is that how you normally get assignments in like in the local news? Or are you uh, maybe you're at an event and you learn of something and so you're just like, okay, I'm gonna go cover this next and you just kind of decide that. Yeah, it's it's a very healthy mix of both. In okay. some cases, in some cases, editors will assign stories. Um, if there, if it's something not directly on your beat, uh, that maybe you're not as much aware of, they'll let you know they want this. Um, but a lot of being on the beat is you kind of know what's coming up, you know, when meetings are, you know, whether the meetings are worth covering or not, you know, what comes out of that. Um, you're, you're generally, you're talking to people who you're, who are involved, whether they're, you know, police officers or people in the community, um, talking about, um, they'll let you know what's coming down the pipeline or if there's something they're concerned about. So I would say stories are a healthy mix of you figuring out what they are on your own versus editors assigning stuff to you or wanting potentially more follow-ups on something you've already done. Sure. So I always uh, thought it was interesting if there was like one, say there was a reporter from one news station and then like a little bit later you saw a reporter from a different news station or from the Tribune or something. Um, do you follow other... Is, is there interaction between news outlets locally? Uh, sure, uh, we have locally, there are three television stations um, who also are local news. Um, there is a difference between TV and print. Um, generally print is able to be a little bit more in depth with yeah, sure. stories and spend more time on things. But often, you know, at press conferences or other major, major items, you know, all four outlets will be at places. Um, and for instance, sometimes there's something that uh, we, uh, the Tribune will report on or break and then TV will do a follow-up story or they'll do the story later as they become aware. And sometimes it's vice versa. Sometimes TV will have a story that we at the Tribune say, oh, that's important. We need to write about that. Or they'll more often TV will have a story and then we'll say, oh, the story they wrote isn't exactly what we want to do, but there's a point that they raised or an issue that they touched on that we think we can branch off of and do there. Um, so there is a little bit of that. Um, there's also some more kind of nuts and bolts interactions, but I don't think they're that interesting for, for geography class, certainly. We're, I, we're just blowing through the oh class schedule. We're going I, wherever we so want I thought, nowadays. I thought you were the teacher, but it seems like I'm the teacher here trying to keep you on task. I mean, you really are. We're, we're, just, we're just fumbling through stuff. Um, <laughs> I skipped class a couple of times. Ooh, very nice. um, who knew? I was, I was in study hall for a while for no reason. Uh, <laughs> walked all the way to Arby's and got lunch at Arby's instead of going to see lunch, you know, all that will, sort of I, stuff. I, a very important point. I never made it to Arby's as a delinquent, a delinquent high schooler, but our, we, our, the Tribune moved offices now. Uh, we're in a new building and there is an Arby's right next door. And I hadn't <laughs> had Arby's very much until we moved offices. And I got to say, it's pretty good. So the importance of geography right there. Yeah. Arby, if you need a sponsor still, Kevin, you got to reach out to the Arby's PR people. Oh, get, get, it, get it going. You know, funny that you mentioned that because uh, this podcast episode has been brought to you by Horsey Sauce. Uh, enter code 
Kevin has a podcast.com at checkout. Um, but so I guess going back to into geography a little bit, you just mentioned that the Southwind Tribune moved locations. Um, is that is that a is that a just a scale thing? Is that a does like location of the offices make a difference in what types of stories you're covering? Um, so the, where a paper is located can be a big uh, factor. Uh, for the Tribune, we did not move very far, so it doesn't affect us um, very much. Um, a bigger uh, example of that would actually be the Boston Globe. Excuse me. Um, when, I, when I was an in, or for many years, the Boston Globe printed out of a, a plant in Dorchester, which is still within Boston, but not very close to the city center. Sure. But they moved, when I first started as an intern there in 2018, they had just moved to an office, a much smaller office right in the heart of downtown, which kind of made things a little bit easier um, for, for me. But certainly it keeps you more connected to the heart of the city. It's easier for people to go out because, you know, even if you have to take like a 15 minute drive to get somewhere, your just human nature makes you a little bit less likely to want to go and talk to someone in person, perhaps. <laughs> Um, but the Tribune's case, it was uh, it was a term. It was a uh, I think it was mostly a cost uh, analysis type decision. Um, we had been in one building since the early 1900s, uh, the Tribune building where we used to uh, print uh, the Tribune. We used to print in house and yeah. had a huge building in downtown South Bend. Um, now we're we're still on the very fringes of downtown, but it's a much smaller office space. Um, so that's kind of where we're at with that. All right. Well, now on to biology class. Uh, probably is my uh, pretty quick question, but do you have a family history of being in journalism at all? Uh, I do not. Uh, both of my parents are classics professors at the University of Notre Dame. Classics meaning they teach Latin and Greek, Roman law, Roman mythology, things of that nature. Um, so maybe that's why you were a history major. Yeah, a that, that bit. definitely got me started <laughs> into history. I, I love that. Still know. I still know enough to look smart when I'm doing Jeopardy uh, every once in a while with some of the history stuff, but um, no journalism. I don't believe anyone. I well, I I I should take it back. I believe my grandmother, um, my mother's grandmother Ida, was a journalist very briefly when she was in her early twenties at a small town um, in southwestern Virginia. I think the only uh, the only story I can remember her telling was one time. Uh, it was one of her first days on the job and she apparently had, there was someone who was in the jail who was uh, arrested for on suspicion of murder mm -hmm. and the newspaper sent her to go interview this person. And again, this is 1950s Virginia. So it seems that the jail just let her in to talk to this accused murderer. And um, she mentioned that she was very scared to do that. And so I'm glad I, I don't do a lot of that now. I, a lot, meaning none. I don't talk to accused murderers while they are in jail, certainly not without lawyers and tons of screenings there. Yeah, yeah. So that's my only family history with uh, journalism. Is there like a family history of, of storytelling? Like are, are Missouri family gatherings a, uh, a recount of, <laughs> of happenings at all times? Well, I think to the extent that all family gatherings sure. are. Uh, I know, uh, yeah, I mean, People like to tell stories. Uh, and who is the, the greatest storyteller of all? Homer, author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. So that history has, has flown down to me through the eons. So what uh, you're saying is Homer is a journalist. 
I would not say that because if you read, if you, when we're going back to journalistic integrity, I don't believe he's entirely accurate with many of the events he depicts in those books. Mm. So that would be an example of maybe if you were, don't read Homer as uh, as a factual, but you should read the Tribune as factual. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I guess since we've, since we've talked about uh, the classics now, uh, it's time for a little bit of a recess break. And uh, before we started, you actually texted me a meme, uh, some industry humor that you wanted to discuss. Oh. I've yet to look at it. Um, okay. So I'm going to go look at it. I'll post it in the show notes. Um, it'll be also at www.kevinhasapodcast.com slash episode slash four if you want to see that um but i'll go i'll go check out this link all right uh so we're talking about this meme it's uh the guy and his girlfriend and he's more interested in the other woman it's that meme um so we have readers is the guy and he's ignoring his girlfriend who is story about counselor preventing people from getting vaccinated and he's looking more about story or he's looking more at stories about packers fans um (laughs) Yeah, so that that might be a little bit uh, of an inside baseball reference if you're not familiar with that. I think the general point is that it's the it's it's an annoyance that sometimes we journalists feel where the guy is ignoring an important story about real events in the community that could affect him or her, mm-hmm. and is instead looking at the more headline clickbaity story about a. Uh, in this case, it happens to be a Packers. A Green Bay Packers fan who got um, who who got some sort of award for being a lifetime Packers fan. I, this was a story that I was assigned to write about. I wrote this story about the Packers fan. Oh, so being a Bears it. fan myself, that was very hard for me to write. Wow! Um, but so that's that's where we're. It's a little bit inside baseball. I apologize. No, but. I mean inside baseball is the point of this recess um, at yeah. all times, explaining kind of that thing. So you there's kind of, I don't know if resentment is the right word, but um, annoyance, the, I'd an say. annoyance, an annoyance in uh, journalists in the fact that clickbait is so effective compared to um, compared to that first draft of history. Uh, mm-hmm. The clickbait is what actually gets people's attention when it's not there. Would you say that's kind of the the rundown of this meme? Yeah, yeah. And again, this is not, you know, this is a story I wrote, so it's maybe not like the height of clickbait, but uh, for, for certain, when we're talking in the larger context of the journalistic ecosystem, it is, it is a little bit disappointing on a certain extent how people seem to be willing to settle for, for clickbait or for surface level analysis or reporting on things for free when they can get better, more researched, better written content that maybe they have to pay a little bit for. or um, so, so that's definitely a frustration that the meme um, represents. I was trying to find a, another uh, a, a GIF, a GIF, if you will, about an introverted journalist. Maybe I'll send that to you later. The only other big industry humor uh, point I can mention is how most of our job in talking, like as journalists, we have to talk to people, whether that's in person or on the phone. Um, yet at the same time, a lot of journalists, and I think especially millennial or younger journalists, are terrified of getting phone calls, making phone calls. Absolutely. Like, why, can't every, why can't everything be text? So there's uh, some funny um, co- uh, <laughs> coming togethers of you have to talk to people because it's your job, but at the same time, you're terrified of phone calls of all sorts. 
I get that. I get that. Cool. Well, thank you for uh, recess time. Uh, we've got two more classes today. Uh, mm -hmm. So the last, or I guess the last non-surprise class is going to be math class. Um, and we kind of already talked about the frequency, you know, covering, uh, it was like three to three to five articles a week or so. Um, mm -hmm. What would you say your, you know, the best part of math is, is time studies, apparently. Um, what would you say your, your kind of time breakdown is for writing versus going out and gathering information, that sort of thing? That's a tough question. I'm not sure I've thought a ton about that. Um, you're writing, I'd say we're anywhere between two to five stories a week. It can range. Usually it's between three and four a week um, is how much, how much I write. Um, I, I think the most, <laughs> well, you want to break down. The largest portion of a journalist's time is waiting for people to call you back. That's <laughs> without a doubt the largest stretch of time you will have is waiting for sure. people to get back to you. Um, and so it's, it's a fairly equal breakdown of talking, you know, finding out who to talk to, thinking of what questions you want to ask them. But then again, longest time waiting for them to actually get back to you. Then you talk to them and then writing um, is the next part. And writing, the writing process is, is it's hard to quantify because it can vary wildly. Um, writing for a feature, there's sometimes things that you have to wait for people to tell you before you know which way a story is going to go oftentimes or other times you have to be able and willing to write stuff very quickly or in cases of you know what's coming you know what's going to happen it's either outcome a or outcome b you can have stuff pre-written in order to get up as quickly as possible um i had some very fun stories of when i used to cover high school football as a freelancer the games started at 7 p.m and the hard hard deadline was 10 p.m <laughs> and the games did not actually, the final whistle would not sound until 9.15 sometimes. So if you were not writing extensive parts of your article during the game, like you were You're not getting it done, you would not get it done. So a lot of, a lot of high school football writing is like, I'm going to write in the hopes that the favorite team is going to win. And gosh, I hope <laughs> they win because otherwise I am screwed for deadline. Wow. That's, that's, yeah, that's good. You're rooting for, rooting for the teams that are going to get you the, not have to do the rewrite. <laughs> Honestly, in, in my case, yes. While it may make a good story as an underdog for deadline purposes, often not great. Yeah. yeah. So uh, some more math. Do you have, I guess, with modern analytics and uh, views online and everything, do you have an estimate of how many people have read your articles? That is a good question. It is not something I often look at. Um, Thankfully, the Tribune is not a paper that is very focused on determining your job performance based on the clicks you get. Yeah, Some publications are like that, and I think it's unhealthy. Um, so thankfully, it's not something I'm often consumed by. Um, they can range. Some, some of the more cut and dry stories can get a, a couple hundred or a couple thousand views. Others can get tens of thousands. Um, I wish that's a very wide range, obviously, and I, I apologize to the readers or to the listeners rather of your great podcast, Kevin, that I don't I don't have a great answer for the, the total number of page views. Hey, you um, know, that's probably it, it sounds like you have uh, maybe a little bit of a uh, a healthier perspective on getting Internet points than I do when I mm -hmm. post something on Instagram 
and I want all of the likes and all of the views and everything. You're well, see, not, but you're, you're not consumed by that. <laughs> well, that's not quite what I said. You see, I, I'm not consumed with how many clicks my stories will get. However, I can name you how many likes the last 12 tweets I got, I did have, you know, that's something I'm very laser focused on. Uh, I see. Okay. Twitter, so it's, Twitter, just, it's manifesting like. elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Cool. All right. So that leads us to our, uh, uh, the, the buses are almost here. Uh, it's time for our surprise uh, surprise class of the day. And uh, as we've mentioned a couple times, you were a history major at Notre Dame. Uh, I learned uh, just before recording that you had a specialization in medieval history. Uh, mm -hmm. You said you wrote a thesis in uh, 1500s England. Is that? Uh, yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, we're going to do a thing where you have to uh, try to compare your job to what would it be like in uh i'll give you medieval 1500s england whatever you feel most comfortable in wow um how do you think the role of a local journalist has gone from medieval history to today or what is what is the parallel are you the uh are you the bard are you the um the the fool what what are you that's a good that's a good uh <laughs> this is a good question um honestly around this time in europe uh printing presses were just coming into popularity nah, don't tell me that you were the journalist that's yeah, not no, an no. So there was certainly no such analogy to there were not journalists in our sense of the word but there were people who were printing things and so if you want an analogy i would probably say the polemicist you know or that's kind of a specific term but someone who was just writing stuff and most of what that would be would be invective, like very nasty things about whatever country I was at war with at the time. So, you know, if I'm in England in the 1500s, my analogy, I would be, if I, you know, if I owned a printing press back then um, in a small town, I would be printing all kinds of very hateful stuff about the Spaniards or the Dutch. Um, neither, of, or no, not the Dutch, England liked the Dutch, the Spaniards and the French, my mistake. Um, certainly none of this would be very true. Uh, certainly a lot of it would be just made up or things to rile up people. Um, so that would definitely, there were, there were in the early stages in the 1500s of the printed word becoming more available to people. Um, of course, literacy is still very low at this time. Um, so you'd probably have whatever I wrote would be read by someone standing on a tree stump, just shouting it out, kind of the hear ye, hear ye. Mm -hmm. this, this would have been that. That would be what I would be doing. Okay, so you, you wouldn't say you're the, the you're not the person yelling hear ye hear ye, but we're gonna keep you with the person who is putting ink on paper and distributing to the masses as I'm the, possible. I'm the hear ye hear ye hype man. That's what I would go with. Mm, perfect. All right. Like, well, like he would say a word and then I'd be uh -huh. like, damn, dude. Oh no. That'd be that'd be me. Dang. All right. You're the. <laughs> The hear ye, hear ye hype man. Uh, let's put that in your Twitter bio for, for future reference. Um, but speaking of your Twitter, I, the buses are here. They're all lined up. So it's, it's time to hop on the buses. Uh, do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, a Twitter handle, Facebook, uh, you know, a Reddit that you love? What, what do you want to, you got anything well, you want to promote? <laughs> feel free to follow me at Marek underscore Mazurik on Twitter. It is mostly uh, local journalism, but a lot of Notre Dame sports uh, content, um, some memes as well. Um, 
I guess the other thing I would promote is just to all the, the many hundreds of thousands of listeners uh, tuning in right now, I, I think try to support your local newspaper as best you can. Um, the journalistic industry uh, is not, it's not doing hot right now overall, um, but supporting your local paper via a subscription is a great way to uh, help in, in the way that you can read your local news, um, kind of just know what's going on. And again, again, I would just try to make the distinction. The New York Times, the Washington Post are great, but they're national organizations who frankly don't need your help as much as uh, local <laughs> papers do. So that'd be my, for just the price of coffee a day, you can help these poor starving journalists. All right. Thanks, Marek. Uh, have a great rest of your day. We'll wrap up things, but it's been great learning uh, why you do that. Well, I appreciate you having me on, Kevin. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to be a guest on a future show, or if you have a question for a previous guest, head on over to www.kevinhasapodcast.com and fill out the forms there. Thanks.